Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. I'm Patrick Rapol. Right now, we are broadcasting live from the house of Steve Prokofi. Yes. You know him from Ain't It Cool News. He writes as Compone. Uh, any other uh, outlets you write for? Or just I, I do some stuff for a, a local site called Gaper's Block, too, which is like a Chicago-based outlet. Mm-hmm. But that's more about just like Chicago area reviews. So, right, right. That's cool. Or events, yeah. Awesome. Um, he's with us here to talk about Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes. Uh, who might be my favorite director of all time. It might be one of the most <laughs> hotly anticipated episodes. I think so. Judging by the sort of discussion that has... Yes, that has generated on your, on your Facebook wall. That <laughs> <laughs> always generates on my uh, Facebook wall. And I of wonder course, what it's going to be like for Jane Campion. Yeah. yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh, it's going to be... Scintillating. It's going to be yeah. madness. Um, but... Uh, <laughs> I mean, and it's it's good timing too because the the master teaser came out recently. Yes, and that's just, I, I I like Paul Thomas Anderson's sort of uh, style where he he'll sit back for a while and people are just like, what the heck is he going to do next? And then he drops something, and people are like, oh, that's right, he's Paul Thomas Anderson. This is going to be amazing. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's it, I don't know. It's I've he's one of those directors who is uh, completely, um, and as Patrick will probably you know attest to. I have such like a, his movies have caused such like a deep emotional impact on me <laughs> that it's 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 very hard to be uh, objective in some regards in terms of like criticisms and we'll get more into that as we uh, introduce the director later. But uh, um, we haven't gotten any emails and stuff, but uh, you know we've gotten a lot of Facebook likes lately, so yeah. that's really cool. Keep, keep liking our uh, Facebook yeah, page, check uh, that you out. Know, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, all that stuff. Oh yeah, absolutely. Keep that up. Thanks. Thank Thanks you very lot. much. So why don't we just go ahead and get right into what we watched this week. What we watched this week. Films. How many of us watch them? Films. Ones that we grew up with. Films. Of all different genres. Films. Before we start the podcast, let's talk Movies films. are magic, it's plain to see Whether in the theater or on DVD Some scare your pants off, some make you laugh Some of the best and some tote to crap Whether you're talking about Spike Jones, King B. Dore, or I Love the Stone Jacques Tati or George Roy Hill It's all good to me because I love films Films Which did we watch this week? Films and what did we think of them? Films. And should you try to catch them? Films. It's time to move on with the podcast. Let's talk films. Um, the, the things I saw this weekend were the two things I saw. Well, yeah, they're, they're, neither one of them is particularly great, but they're not, inter- in, in, uh, they're not entirely terrible either. <laughs> uh, the first one was Chernobyl Diaries, oh, which yeah. I missed the press screening of... Uh, I think it was the night before the opening day, but um, that actually has a really great setup and a terrible payoff. Oh, but it's yeah. but it I actually I gotta say that 
I don't know where they actually shot this thing, mm-hmm. but it it just it creeped me out. Uh, just the setting really? before the the sort of uh, the thing that's supposed to scare you enters the picture. Even right. what's there, just walking through this medium sized city, abandoned, you know, it's and just sort of that idea that you're in a hot zone. And if you're there, if anything gets in the way of you getting out of there by a certain time, you're in real trouble. And then they go up to the top of this building and look out the window mm-hmm. and you can see Chernobyl like in the distance. And it, that just kind of freaked me out a little bit. I don't know if it was a real thing. I'm sure it wasn't. But I kind of dug it and, and to a point, to a point. And right. then something kind of enters the picture. These, little, I mean, I guess I'm not giving it away. It's in the trailer. But there's there's still some people who are who hung around <laughs> and uh and animals and, and people and they see dead people. Yeah. So <laughs> I no no, it's not I don't even think it's supposed to be a supernatural. It's more like a oh, yeah. mutant thing, I guess, but like mutated oh. people. So I mean it's been twenty five years, something like that. Mm. So uh like a whole generation apparently has grown up right. in this nuclear wasteland. But uh no, it's 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 I like the look of it. I and I'm, I'm kinda you know and, and actually contrary to what the trailer might lead you to believe it is not a found footage That's exactly movie either. What I thought it was going to be. There there are maybe two brief moments where we see something from the perspective of a video camera. Mm-hmm. But no, it's a stand. It's just a handheld camera that's shooting it, but it's not a found footage movie at all. Oh, cool. And when I saw that, I breathed a sigh of relief. Not that I'm completely against the format, but mm-hmm. I'm like, good. I don't have to deal with figuring out who found the that's, found footage. That's a little crazy that now they're selling non-found footage movies <laughs> as found footage. Like, yeah. like it, it's like before they you try to try to hide something that made a made a film unusual or like. Like when Sweeney Todd trailer sort of tried to hide that it was a musical. Like yeah. <laughs> now they're doing the opposite, and they're just like, "Well, it's, we we want people to think it's found footage." Yeah. Um, I like the idea though uh, of the setting being really creepy because I mean I I'm really sort of terrified by uh, the like sort of abandoned you know civilization. I think that's just sort of a naturally kind of haunting thing. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I have that same feeling. Jim, claustrophobia uh, you. Or- yeah. Uh, you actually, we, I, obviously, I talked about it last episode, and I talked about it in a previous episode before that. Mm-hmm. But it's just one of my favorite favorites. Pulse. Yeah. You finally got to see. I absolutely did. And I think one of the creepiest <laughs> things about that movie <laughs> is how like the city just becomes abandoned. You yes. don't know what's going on. And I was not anticipating that last act at all. Yeah, where it went, where it gets really apocalyptic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Are the is this some? Is this um, like a dumb teenager movie? Like, or is it just like here's the annoying douchey boyfriend, and here's the like it is it because that's one of my main problems with sort of it's they're not I don't believe they're supposed to be teenagers. They're more like twenty something, okay, yeah. but there is at least one very douchey character in it. Yeah, and uh, it, it's a pair of brothers. One lives in Kiev, and the other is sort of bringing his girlfriend to visit, and then she's bringing her best friend. So there's mm-hmm. technically two couples going on this extreme tourism trip um but yeah i mean there's some very douchey behavior for sure and just people taking risks that would not make any sense but there's you know and you know but i will say this there is one scene where they're first exploring this abandoned apartment building it has nothing to do with what's gonna scare you later on on the film that scared the crap out of me and and then when it's over you're laughing because of what it actually is but it's it's let's you know it's one of those it's kind of set up like one of those scenes where a cat jumps out of a closet or something right, like right. that except the it jump, ain't no cat that's exactly that's exactly <laughs> yeah. what I was thinking when you said <laughs> it is it's 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 set up like that but it ain't no cat yeah. <laughs> it is something much 
more so it's an biz- effective jump scare of sorts it or? is an eff- it, it, it's Good. more than a jump scare okay. but it's but it, and it is uniquely russian i will say that it is, nice. it, it is only this only this i think would happen in russia so my uh, my friend Haley palumbo one of her hobbies is um going into like like finding abandoned shopping shopping malls and stuff and Ooh, I'd uh, like to do that. Some, fun. Like she found a, a not she found. I mean, it's listed online, but sure. there was a, there's an abandoned hospital. I can't remember the name of it that she went to, and she found like Ooh. prosthetic limbs like floating around in water. And she was like, it was, and she was just like, just very matter of factly, she's like, it was clearly haunted. Like, it, was, <laughs> it was clearly very haunted. So man, I totally have to do that and bring my camera. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds, but um, no. So that is the one part of Chernobyl Diaries that intrigued me, but mm-hmm. I. Kind of. I did you like uh, Paranormal Activity? The I, I am. I will unapologetically liked all three Paranormal really? movies. Oh. Yeah, I, I think I, I think those are very effective, and they always get me. And I actually physically injured myself watching the first one <laughs> by jumping because I because I tend to watch. I don't know. I'm, and this I'm about to embarrass myself here. I, the thing that gets me more than anything is loud noises. That just scares me in life. That scares me in movies. So I tend to if I think something's coming up, I might plug an ear mm-hmm. just so it won't be quite as loud it doesn't it never helps but <laughs> but i actually had my hand like like above like parts my fingers over my eyes and like my thumb in my ear and i jumped and i scratched myself <laughs> on the forehead and it, and it was like it wasn't bleeding but it was yeah. a clear mm-hmm. scratch and so I, I worked that into my review that I, this movie physically injured me. Yeah. <laughs> so no, but I, I I can't help it. I know I and I'm gotten crap for liking those movies, but I don't care because I I think they're effective horror movies. I like the actors in them. As annoying as the characters may be, I like that the actors can play them. That's how they're supposed. They're supposed to be annoying. If those people yeah. annoy you, the movie is doing its job. In my okay. In my, <laughs> why, wait, wait. Why why do they have to be annoying? Because because only an annoying person would take would do the things that they do and like you so said there's already an entry level for filming your entire life yeah well exactly and then and then but like if you've established that there's something you, you, that provoking these these ghosts is gonna make your situation a little bit worse yeah maybe you should not film maybe you just got it but the, the the guy in the first movie is a total douche yeah. and. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But but that, that's like that's he's he's great at it. I recently caught up caught up. Well, this is well. I mean, this is the first time that I've seen a movie by this director, Bob Raffleson. Is that his Raffles- name? Raffleson. Raffleson. Yeah. Um, in this box set that you uh, get, let me borrow. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, America Lost and Found uh, Criterion box. It's yeah. amazing. It's I'm really looking forward to the rest of these. The only one I've seen is Easy Rider, and although I realize its cultural significance, it certainly didn't really do much for me. Um, I, I mean. I, I realize that it's, it spoke to a generation, and it, and it probably you know deserves a place in, in history. But it's not something that really affected me in the way that I've I'd hoped for. Wait, Even, did you say what movie it was? Um, Easy. Sorry, I was talking about Easy Rider and how, Easy Rider. Okay, yeah, and how it really didn't do much for me. Um, I don't know if that that wasn't the same. No, that was uh, that was who directed that? Was that Dennis Hopper? Himself? That was, that was Dennis Hopper. Dennis oh, yeah, Hopper directed right, that yeah, one. Okay. Yeah, Rafelson did well, yeah, five easy pieces. The reason why I mentioned yeah. that was because it's in the same box set yeah. as this one. Yeah, because they all come from the BBS studio that uh, Bob Rafelson uh, co-owned, and it right. was. Yeah, I plan on watching the documentary that's on this particular uh, DVD, and the movie is Five Easy Pieces. <laughs> way, way to bury yeah. the lead. Yeah, no, I, I'm sorry. We were talking about James L. Brooks off air, and it just sort of happened subconsciously. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, but to talk about an amazing character study, and, and what an odd coincidence that you know he 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 works on an oil rig. <laughs> it's always funny how I unintentionally wind up uh, creating these connections between the movies uh, I, I, we wind up talking on the show. But uh, Jack Nicholson is unbelievable in this movie. He like it's it's one of those you know understated performances, and you know his moments of uh, sort of eruption uh, in like inner tor- turmoil sort of coming into light is really something that you know we, we've, we've grown to expect him to sort of be the you know yelling screaming over the top Jack Nicholson that you know he sort of uh, not necessarily you know relied on but he, he, had, he, had, he had sort of his tics and sort of his uh, usual nuances that he relied on through the, the latter part of his career but here it's the, it's just so subtle in his approach and like there's you know certainly moments where he breaks down like in the car freaking out that totally seems justified that's not like you know oh I need to be over the top here but that's exactly how his character would react it's just a really incredible character study that um you know, it's it's it, it sort of reminds me a little bit of something like da- that David Gordon Green would do in in his approach. Maybe you know, obviously he's more influenced by Malick and whatnot. But this is just kind of my sort of you know character study where it's it, it really is a, a simple story told simply, and you know, obviously there's the father and son um, <clears throat> conflict at at the core of this movie as well. That's really interesting and sort of to see just 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 a sort of. Uh, witness a character who you know gave up on his dreams that I find um, you know it's one of those sort of universal themes that you know pops up in a lot of movies that I tend to gravitate towards like why did he give up on his dreams and why is he settling in this life why is he settling with this girl that completely makes him unhappy Um, and then you know that ending is just so powerful because you know you think what's he you know what would he do is he going to go back home is he going to stay with this girl nope He's going to do something completely different and sort of find himself in a way. And it is a selfish act, I guess, but I think it's kind of warranted too. And that's kind of it fits his character as well. But um, I don't know. It's just it's something that I'm shocked that I have taken this long to see because it is kind of up my alley. And uh, I look forward to checking out more movies by this director. And uh, it's it's kind of interesting, um, especially as you're as you will find out as you go through the the box set. Mm-hmm. Uh, like five easy pieces is very. Arch- archetypical. I mean, you may mention it. You know, it could possibly be an influence for David Gordon Green, but like just within that box set, that sort of. And I, I guess this is more about you know the times, uh, you know, changing and sort of idealism sure. fading and stuff. But like, it's just it's just story after story about potential not achieved and right. uh, and about like broken, lost dreams. Uh, King of Marvin Gardens is. Um, practically the same movie, but Bruce Dern uh, plays sort of the Ooh, outlandish brother, and Jack Nicholson plays the very sort of reserved uh, brother. And uh, uh, Drive, he said, is a is a movie Jack Nicholson directed that's on that box set, and mm. it's about a college basketball player who you know doesn't know what he wants to do, and he's yeah and about unearned potential and all that. <laughs> like uh, it's a, yeah, it's like the death of idealism and sort of coming to terms with your past and sort of figuring out where you are, or having like an existential crisis. I love that shit, yeah. <laughs> you know. And here it's just really done so beautifully, and you know, in, in a way it's not very showy, and, and that's kind of I don't know. I know this uh, this uh, this director he did he kind of failed later in his career with like pretty quickly trouble. actually, yeah. yeah. Um, so it's I don't know. I'm just I'm just very curious about this early '70s era. Obviously, I've seen other films of that time, but um, 
yeah, I just I'm really glad I finally caught up with this one. I'm really excited to see more. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. No, I really <laughs> no, I really like that movie. Uh, it, like it, it just devastates me. Like the is it Karen Black is the actress? Yeah. Like his the relationship between him and Karen Black just at the beginning, and you're just like, why is he like this? And mm-hmm. like just that scene in the bowling alley is just yeah, such a weird and personal like burning sort of. And he's just openly flirting with the girls in the next lane and everything. It's, yeah. it's like so raw and like just so intense. Um, and I, and I, scary. <laughs> and, 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 and like you said before, uh, Nicholson sort of, you know, began to more rely on these kinds of ticks. Like that was what was so great about him is he could be so raw and he right. could be so present in scenes like that. Um, you know, I love five of these pieces. It's actually been quite a while since I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I really love that movie. Yeah, um, Definitely. Yeah. Now, uh, last week uh, I talked about seeing the American remake of The Ring for the first time since I saw it in theaters, mm-hmm. and that sort of prompted me to go and uh, combination of that and having seen Pulse like in the past month and just becoming really obsessed with it. You know, as it just it just Pulse is one of those movies that just sits in my mind and it's just like this memory. Yeah. It's like an itch that I can't scratch. Um, it's been messing with my dreams. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I've been trying to go and fill in uh, more sort of holes in my uh, sort of knowledge of J-Hor. And uh, one of the films that was recommended to me by Gabe Powers, uh, you know, past guest and um, hopefully future contributor to the uh, Directors Club site is uh, Uzumaki, uh, which is a – it means spiral. And that's uh, – it's a manga adaptation. Um, and I would actually say like it is more manga than it is horror because okay. – like other manga adaptations, like you think of like something like Tokyo Gore Police or something like you think of something like really outlandish where the where it's all about like you know there's all these sort of frozen tableaus where it's clear they're kind of like recreating panels from the manga and there's like crazy special effects where you know people are just like twisting in half and there's just blood shooting everywhere and stuff like yikes it's uh, it's actually uh, it, so this this the story is it's about a town who. Uh, they become obsessed with spirals and it's this sort of contagious madness where every spiral they see they become obsessed with it and then it you know it it it, it sends them to you know suicidal rage it sends them to just violent rage and um and it's actually kind of an interesting setup for a more traditional j horror where cuz i mean that's a that's a sort of inherently cinematic topic of making the audience sort of spot spirals in the frame and stuff like that and sort of harping on symbolism and stuff like that but it it really just goes crazy <laughs> and it just goes nuts and it's and it's really fun though and mm-hmm. uh is it like Hausu in any way i it's, i just think of over the top like, it's nothing not, is it's, like Hausu. yeah no, no, that's <laughs> no, true. true nothing is like Hausu, but uh it, it is over the top like and crazy like that. yeah i think i like it if it's it, it doesn't break reality quite as much mm-hmm. um but it does have sort of like it'll just sort of go on these weird uh, tangents, like there's that have nothing to do with the horror or the mystery behind it or anything. Like yeah. there's just randomly like the the cool girl in school, like her hair is like are these magic floating spirals, and oh, and they make her do gymnastics <laughs> well. And then there's like a there's a section where it's a news report, and they're just like talking about what happened to town, which and it, there's like people are turning into snails because their shells are spirals, and like no. you see these snail people climbing up the school and stuff. Like it's it's Whoa. a wonder. It's a wonderfully crazy movie. It's the kind of movie that only can be made in Japan. Um, hmm. 
Uh, It is sort of a thing where it's just like, ah, I wish they took it seriously because that could have been like really (laughs) genuinely creepy instead of silly. But, you know, it's fun. Not everything's going to be Pulse. Yeah, right. Um, I have seen it. It it actually is pretty memorable. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Although it's not particularly scary, but. Right, they do. They do have some things where they go. Well, uh, they uh, they do good. Like for example, there's a um, a uh, this guy's father dies, and you don't know. You know, it involves a washing machine. You don't know how, and they don't show it. They just show someone looking in the washing machine and screaming, and then and then there's a. He, apparently, he videotaped himself doing whatever. <laughs> but you, they only show you the video up to a certain point. Like the dude, like there are some sort of. You know, power of suggestion and stuff like that—that that is sort of prominent in J horror and just making you keep wondering what's in there. Like, like in like in Pulsers, for example, what's behind the door? Or, right. You know, but um, or in Ringu or something like what? What does that mean? But uh, in the end, it, it's, it's not something that's paid off in any way that mm-hmm. is something other than amusing. But um, no, I'm excited to keep going through because. Uh, at the worst, J Hor is well. No, at the worst, J Hor is very boring and dull, <laughs> and 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 uneventful. But uh, I, I feel that often it will fall into two camps where it's like kind of actually atmospheric and quiet, and which is you know something you don't get out of American horror. Uh, right. Like uh, like I talked about last week. Like even in the remake of The Ring, they keep flashing back to the video and they keep they keep hammering home every time you see a symbol from the video and stuff. It's there's not a lot of suggestion or anything like that. I know. I'm almost halfway curious to to to, to see the the remake of of Pulse just to see how bad it is. Yeah. Because I mean, obviously, there's just no way they can capture that dread. It's actually surprisingly similar. Is it? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Especially the end. Yeah. They, they. Oh, really? They don't really alter too much. Uh, Interesting. If anything, they simplify it. So. Hmm. Um, what are some of the more uh, what? memorable J-horror movies for you? I, I used to be way into this, and there, there used to be a video store. Uh, not that far, like in Roscoe Village, it used to. The guy was just obsessed with Asian films in general mm. that weren't coming here, and he just used to get them and and we became friends. He just give them to me to watch. Not, I mean, he was he was supposed to rent them or buy them. He but was he just lending them to you, sure. but he yeah. was just so happy that he had a student in me. The um, <laughs> no, the the one like Zhuan has always been probably my my favorite. Mm-hmm. Um, but then um, we talked before about audition, which I think qualifies yeah. as. I mean, I, I'm I Absolutely. was. I went through a Miike phase that could probably continues till today. I think he had a movie at Cannes this year, even. Um, but uh, I mean, you know, the guy used to make five movies yeah. a year, so <laughs> that's that's one of the things. Like, I'd love to cover him, but I, like, how do you encapsulate him? You can't. It's a, a director. It'll have to be a two-parter. So, actually, one I haven't heard you guys talk about is Dark Water, which is a really yeah. great, really good movie. Actually, that I've was seen remade. The I mean, I've seen the remake. Remake with Jennifer Connelly, yeah, which really isn't like isn't bad, but yeah. the, the original is so unbelievably yeah, scary. I put that on my list. I want to see uh, that. Dark Water's good. Uh, One Miss Call, which... Uh, now, because I, 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 uh, I have that. I haven't watched it yet. Is that crazy Mieke, or is does he actually like building tension like in a... You know, it's it's actually his attempt to make something like what other people were making. Yeah. So no, he's definitely... Uh, he it, there, His touches are there, but I think he's pretty faithful to what the... The genre was doing at the time so uh yeah one missed call was really good um if you want to if you want to even go a little further far afield with me you could go with ichi the killer which is just still need to see that that, again that that's sort of what i thought of when i was thinking like this is more like a manga adaptation than it is a horror yeah because i don't i don't think i would necessarily qualify like if you had to pick a genre for ishii 
uh, would be almost like a superhero movie. Well, kind of. Or a supervillain movie. Um, yeah. But no, and then, um, God, I'm trying to think if I had anything else. Nope, those are probably the okay, ones that cool. uh, those are the ones then, uh, that I would stay. I, 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 I like water. I love dumplings. Uh, yeah, dumplings. that's I mean that's dumplings not Jap- that's Jap- that's not Japanese. Yeah. That's Chinese, but yeah. right. But it is. It wasn't dumpling. Was in a part of the trilogy. Yeah, yeah. three extremes. Yeah. But actually, they, they there, there is a version of dumplings. that's a feature length film. Yeah, so actually, you can okay. get the, that's yeah. the one I saw. Yeah, the three. I I've, I actually haven't watched it yet, but I, the three extremes DVD comes with a bonus disc which has the feature length right. version of dumplings. Right. That was fun. I Park Chan Wook's uh, uh, film on that isn't so great, but uh, oh. I like uh, Mikkei's and I like uh, actually Mikkei's Masters of Horror entry is really good too. And I can't remember the name of it, but I haven't seen it. I, it's it brutal. Off. I had it's to turn brutal. it off. Oh, um, but yeah, that well, that was the one they never aired. Right, like, yeah, you could exactly. only get it on the DVD, yeah. but that was a pretty great experience. Yikes. Um, oh, and you know, I, I'm one of, I should have brought this up earlier in the show, but I wanted to give a plug for, for your event that you're, you're, you're covering through tug.com because I mean, we're mentioning extreme horror films in a way. True. So, you know, segue briefly into that, but, um, the loved ones, which is Australian film. It's a few years old from what I understand right. too. Cause I know that my boss, Harry Knowles saw it maybe two or three years ago at, at a festival and loved it and has been sort of pushing and paramount bought it pretty early but they didn't i don't think they really knew what to do with it because mm-hmm. they they're not they don't other than paranormal they don't really get into the horror genre so uh paranormal yeah so so yeah we're showing a well it's not even our event per se but they're, they're trying something new where in a few cities we are co-sponsoring screenings of uh, the loved ones and at tug through tug.com and if you just right. go to tug.com you'll see you'll see a link to where you can sign up. Oh, the thing is that the, the, the difference is they're not, these are paid screenings, although the, the price is less than you would pay for a normal movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's a, a, let's see, Friday, June 5th. Is that next Friday? Oh yeah, it might be. Uh, it's at midnight mm-hmm. on June 5th. Uh, we only have to sell 50 tickets to make sure that it happens. I think we've sold like 46 so far. Right. So, but I don't know when this is airing, but uh, by the time you get it up, uh, it'll be within the next couple of days. And we do have a lot of yeah. Chicago listeners, so that's yeah, absolutely. Bit. This may be the only time it screens in Chicago, but yes. if the, but if the response is is good and strong, and we get a good showing in the five cities where it's happening, and a couple of the cities have sold out. I think Austin is sold out, and San Francisco sure. sold out. But uh, a few of the if they get a good showing, a good response, and good sort of social network feedback from it, mm-hmm. they'll they'll open it up wide. But uh, this will be your chance to kind of get in before everybody else and and check it out. And I highly recommend it. I highly yeah, recommend seen seeing it, it yeah. with a crowd uh, because there are some moments in this that you want to see with a group of people and see their reactions. <laughs> I have no um, idea what you're talking yes, about. Yes, <laughs> I'm not going to go into any more detail than that. That's cool. Uh, like, you know, it's been described as Pretty in Pink meets Wolf Creek. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of apt, you know. Um, you know, and normally I'm not necessarily a fan of, like, you know, torture kind of scenarios. But I think this one is pretty effective and something that will be a lot of fun for people to see. Uh, so that's, like, through Tug, which is T-U-G-G mm-hmm. dot com. And that's, uh, you know, since we were talking about horror movies, I wanted to bring that to attention. Sure. And uh, we can pretty much segue right along, right? Absolutely. Excellent. So we're going to talk about our director of the episode, Paul Thomas Anderson. Wait, I love this part. Magnolia and 
Anderson was born in Studio City, California. His father, Ernie Anderson, an actor and a legendary voice of ABC, was also a Cleveland television late-night horror movie host. He grew up in uh, San Fernando Valley and was very close with his father, who encouraged him to become a writer and a director. After years of experimenting with a Bullock 16mm camera, he wrote and filmed his first real production as a senior in high school at Montclair Prep using money that he earned while cleaning cages at a pet store. His first production was a mockumentary called The Dirk Diggler Story, which evolved into a feature screenplay, obviously, and served as the foundation for what eventually became Boogie Nights. After odd jobs as a production assistant, Anderson was invited to the 1994 Sundance Filmmakers Lab, in which mentor Michael Caton Jones gave him practical lessons in the art of filmmaking. His first screenplay was then titled Sydney. But then upon its completion, Reister Entertainment re-edited it and changed the title to Hard Eight. With his next experience at New Line Cinema, he got his final say and, uh, uh, his, what do you call it, last cut or final cut? Yeah. <laughs> With his second production, Boogie Nights. And that became, obviously, a huge critical success, garnered several awards and Oscar nominations. But in 1999 which we have gone on record here as being kind of an incredibly interesting and seminal year in film, Anderson released his three-hour epic opus, Magnolia, which is an operatic homage to Robert Altman's shortcuts that kind of also served as a therapeutic uh, exercise for, for Anderson in response to the passing of his father. Now, I think our, we, we sort of go around the room and share our feelings about the director. And can, I, can I first say, I love yes. how you say Boogie Nights. Thank you. Boogie Nights. Boogie Nights. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boogie Nights. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I'll just start off <laughs> because I think I have a lot of personal biases I can kind of address up front. I just unabashedly love his movies for... Uh, some personal reasons, as I mentioned, just like uh, like my experiences of watching these movies with family, friends, ex-girlfriends, what have you. I mean, it's just like I have these associational memories with his movies. And as I'm watching them, I get that same euphoric high I get from like some of my all-time favorite movies. And it's a sense of vulnerability I get from <clears throat> like his storytelling. Like it has no fear of being blatantly honest when it comes to you know um, capturing humanity and all of its kind of messiness. And his movies have this like bruised romanticism with these sad, desperate characters that he seems to love and hate at the same time. Especially in something like Magnolia, and with that, I'm willing to abandon logic simply because of 
the emotional payoff, you know, and, and, and the response I get from watching his movies, even if, it, if the movies themselves aren't always cohesive or entirely original. Even in one of the uh, Boogie Nights commentaries, uh, you know, Paul Thomas Anderson himself goes on record as saying that he is indulgent and messy and has loose ends. Um, but that's sort of not like his main focus. He, he clearly loves these actors. He clearly loves just kind of uh, paying homage to all these other films that has influenced and inspired him. And, you know, I've, he chooses to make a movie that, you know, he, he wants to experience in a very personal way, and he brings a very sort of personal touch to everything, and I kind of really respond to that. And as, you know, I mentioned earlier, I just have like a direct emotional response to his movies, and, and that sort of crazy throw-things-against-the-wall approach is, I don't know, it's something I gravitate towards with, you know, I don't mind the imperfections when it comes to storytelling with his movies. And I know Magnolia in particular is a film that drives a lot of people crazy. And, you know, their criticisms, I think, are valid. Uh, but I feel like with my, with my taste and sensibilities in general, uh, this, this movie works for me in a, in a way that few films have ever done before. It's, you know, I, I know that there's moments where the camera gets too busy. And, but I, I still sense that he has this confidence and recklessness. And I think his goal is getting to, like, the emotional core. And... From my own experience, that's kind of what I respond to in general. Even if even if there's histrionics and operaticness, um, I don't know. There's like little things, you know, in the movie. Even just like the idea of the weather as being a reflection of internal conflict. I think that's there. And you know, singing along to sad songs. I think there's examinations of, uh, you know, parenting gone wrong, death, cancer, <laughs> like everything just sort of mishmashed in a very haphazard way and, and, and you know I don't, I, again I don't think that's necessarily like intentional maybe but it just happens I think that it's it's satisfying for me to watch Magnolia it's exhausting but in a way that I, I find completely amazing every time I see it um, but I, I, I just think I just really respond to his fearlessness his sort of like I don't know. I he, he does something crazy in almost every single movie that makes me want to applaud. I, I, I don't have no other way to put it other than that. I just I get really excited even when I rewatch these movies. I feel like I've probably watched like four of his movies at least once a year since they've come out, and there's a reason for that because I just love the guy. What can I say? <laughs> mm-hmm. So uh, let's uh, continue. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't have a strong personal connection to, to him or his, his films. Uh, I like it. I, I mean, I always liked his movies a lot. I liked Boogie Nights. I uh, really liked Punch Drunk Love. Uh, when I was an mm-hmm. ang- you know, when I was an angry, sexually frustrated teenager, Punch Drunk Love is the greatest. <laughs> As opposed to now being an angry, fr- sexually yeah. frustrated. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay. When I'm an angry, sexually frustrated adult now, it's completely different. But yeah. no, when you're like 15 and you're just like, ah, girls, like Punch sure. Drunk Love is the best love story that's ever been <laughs> yeah. made. Um, so I just, you know, and, um, I only, I think I only saw Magnolia for the first time, uh, last year or something like that. And it's get out. Yeah. Get no. Out. Um, but, uh, it's, <laughs> but, uh, it's there a lot was, to take on. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there, but there was, uh, there was something I listened when I was, you know, rewatching his movies. I listened to the commentary for heart eight and, uh, there's a part where he mentions that, uh, uh, he had like 15 drafts of the script because he said, uh, I, the way I write is I just sort of let the story write itself. And he has the opposite of writer's block. <laughs> right, exactly. That's, that's the way he put it. And I think that's 
like that's probably why Magnolia can go such great and weird and crazy places. But that's also I feel like a lot of my problem with uh, some of his movies is that in the end they just feel kind of very uh, you know uneven and just kind of you know like Magnolia is probably the best example of everything all the ways that sort of just going by the seat of your pants and not having some kind of overarching uh, you know unifying idea of everything all the ways yeah. that can go right and all the ways that can go wrong because I mean there's you know there's like even just that intro is simultaneously uh, you know with the Ricky Jane uh, mm-hmm. narrated intro it's simultaneously amazing and it's kind of doesn't have a lot to do with the movie like with it sets it up movie, it no. sets up the overall theme as the idea of fate versus coincidence but when you look at the individual stories none of them have anything to do with it like even the way they interact it doesn't have a lot to do with what a weird coincidence like for example like the like uh, Donnie the whiz kid Donnie like has no interaction with uh, Philip Baker Hall or anything like like if he ran into him in a weird way like oh that would be a coincidence because they were on the same show but there's nothing like that there's Sure. Like, pretty much the only coincidence is that the camera happens to be following all these characters. Or that they're all tied to Earl Partridge, in a way. Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, it's just, that's not coincidence. Like, right. everyone is tied to someone, you know, if, sure. if someone goes through life, you know, 60, so, however many years, they're going to be a lot of people tied to them. But, like, at the same time, like, I love that intro, and I've, like, that's one of those things that I watch those three stories, like, again and again, mm-hmm. just because I love how they're shot. I love yeah. the, I mean, especially the the last one, and I love the audacity of, like, uh, I think it's the sound of like an orchestra tuning up right before the boy jumps off the rooftop. Like all things like that are amazing, but at the same Definitely. time, uh, and and I mean, and the first time I saw Magnolia, I was just blown away because it's just this emotional battering ram. Yes. And then this time when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, like like a lot of this I'm not really feeling. And the like once I when I, when I was trying to like think about well, what is tying all these stories? Like why did you, this need to be told in this way? Where all of these interconnecting stories, and it's—I I couldn't think of a really satisfactory reason. And then there's like, like the modern day whiz kid is like that whole story, like arc is he is sad and he has to urinate, like, mm-hmm. like that whole like that's a real drag. I don't like that, like you know. So, uh, you know, I like I like Magnolia a lot. You know, I think it's a really good movie. I just uh it's uh it's kind of a overly tiring tiring one for me and it's just uh it can't really justify some of the crazy places it goes i can can understand that steve absolutely not um (laughs) no you know and i think the lesson to be learned from what you just said is it's okay to be wrong sometimes so it's Mm -hmm. it's no but no it's it's magnolia's connective tissue and you know, every time I watch it, I, I find something. What I, I'm, I'm almost positive I know what it's about each time I see it. It's every right. time it's something different. And the first couple of times I saw it, I did think it was just something as simple as well. We're all connected, and we're all, and 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 I think those moments are most beautifully sort of uh, made clear in that 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 scene of them all singing the song gets me every time. Absolutely. Like it will never not make me it's tear a, it's up. A, it's and an amazing like, scene. Yeah, and, and it shouldn't work. And it wouldn't work again. And it, but I know, it, that's it, how it, I feel it, about perfectly. Well, what I love about number one, and, number one, it's a perfect song because yeah, it's it's yeah. not a musical number. It's a very and number two, it's just on its own. It's an incredibly moving song, right? And if you really listen to the words, it's basically telling these people, you know what, you might as well just give up. Yeah, just don't yeah. even try because it's like never that, it's yeah, not going to get better. That, that refrain of it's not <laughs> yeah. going to stop is just <laughs> devastating. Um, and right where it is in the movie is perfect. And, yeah. But and then also, I mean, people laugh at the at the rain of frog sequence, but 
both of those moments happen at these incredibly emotionally explosive moments. Yeah. Sometimes they're internal and sometimes they're very much externalized, but, um, it's just, it's as if to say, it's as if God is saying to them, Hey guys, everyone just calm down. Everyone take a (laughs) breath. I'm going to, I'm going to make this happen. It's going to make everyone just stop what they're doing because you're all going to die. If you keep going this way, literally get out of the rain. Yes. (laughs) These are heavy Um, things that will hurt you. And, and, and just so, so, I mean, but beyond, beyond those sort of more, more, uh, elaborate moments that people kind of focus on the last time when I watched it a couple days ago or about a week ago, I, I realized knowing a little bit more about Anderson now and about how he, in a lot of ways in his over his, over the years has not only had this relationship. One of the times I watched the film, I thought, okay, this is about parents and kids and this parental angst. I mean, nobody gets along with their parent in this movie. Mm-hmm. And so for many years, I thought that's what it was about. And that was easy to identify with. Um, but this time I realized now it's, it's, it's Anderson's most personal film because a, each of the characters kind of represents a part of his very fractured psyche. Psyche, right. Yeah. But then also he has spent a great deal of his professional life, um, from what I understand, uh, denying a lot of his past life, uh, denying mm. a lot of – he doesn't keep in touch with any of his old friends. He doesn't like – I mean, he's very much a person who has tried to reinvent themselves. And actually all of his films – feature characters trying to reinvent themselves and they don't like to talk about their past. They get very angry when you try to talk about, I mean, there's, is there any difference between the way Tom Cruise acts in Magnolia and the way Daniel Plainfield acts and there will be blood when he's asked to talk about his, his past, they both just get, I don't want to talk about that or they just don't say anything. I mean, it's the same. And, and, and and everyone, I mean, John Riley in heart eight is trying to model himself after this gambler and, um, and in Boogie Nights, it's a reinvention of dirt, you know of this kid to Dirk Diggler. It, they're all about reinvention and and putting your past so far behind you that it almost does it doesn't really exist for you anymore. Mm-hmm. And so, and but Magnolia is filled with characters that that are like that and that that are having to come to, and some of them actually have to come to grips with their past. Sure, and it's horrible. And it's like and it's like Anderson saying, "Look at the horrible things that happen to you if you go backwards." Even just like a couple steps, if you go hmm. backwards, these horrible, horrible things are going to happen to you. And that's a powerful message because there's a lot of films that live in the past or that say, you know, don't forget where you come from. And Confront it's a lot past. of stories, not just yeah. movies, but right. literature and every and everything. And and yeah, and, and psychotherapy in general. <laughs> but but Paul Anderson's like, no, 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 <laughs> we don't need that. Right. Uh, I think the, I think one of the most amazing things too, even if you just like type in magnolia essay or themes or whatever on google and stuff you just find so many people like you know like you were saying gravitating towards one idea like oh this is mostly about parenting but then you can find another essay oh no this movie is actually very religious and then there's another (laughs) essay oh no this movie is completely existential and i just i mean i didn't have time to read them all but i kind of want to because i I think it's amazing uh, what's what's the name of that documentary i think it was on at sundance and it was just played uh, somewhere at Cannes too. About the, the Shining? Uh, yeah, about the Shining huh. Room uh, 357 or oh, something like that. Yeah, yeah. that. That's what that reminds me of. And that is like the hallmark of there. there's definitely a lot of Magnolia that is really touching people that is really... Um, In different ways, which is awesome. Uh, is it Jason Robards? Mm-hmm. His speech, like just the way all other sound cuts out, you just hear like his like really hard, harsh, like struggled breaths and it's just 
and it's like not a monologue. It's not a movie monologue where there's a start, middle, and an end, and then and then after it's done, you can imagine someone going end scene, and they're done with their audition. Like it's yeah. it's it's just him like grappling with these ideas of regret and stuff. It's like don't don't forget, and it's just played over all of these. I think uh, like John C. Riley losing his gun and stuff like that, yeah. like. The like, low points of most people. It, like, for as slick as, you know, a lot of the, the whip pans and the tracking shots are, like, it goes raw. And that's what I really respect about Magnolia is... And I feel like all of his movies are pretty raw. I mean, I, I, and maybe it's just, again, me sort of not necessarily projecting, but sort of responding to that aspect so much that it's overwhelming. But also, you know, there's there's uh, he he puts little subtle things in in the movie, almost like Easter eggs in a way. Because even if you just take a look at the books that the kid is reading when he's at the library, there's one by this uh, this author named Charles Fort, and Charles Fort wrote about these weird. Uh, crypto meteorological moments in history and he documents a lot about how frogs have actually rained in in real life and and Philip Baker Hall himself said that he w- he was showered with frogs when he was in Italy <laughs> and so like I just I mean he, he 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 definitely grabs from you know from other people's lives but he manages to make it very personal and he certainly you know definitely has this tendency to um, you know, mirror and, and and borrow quite a bit from other filmmakers, but that's that's something that you know the end product for me is completely satisfying. To where you know I don't necessarily okay maybe he is ripping off the ending of Raging Bull for for, for the ending of Boogie Nights. Maybe he is, but if it services the the, I, the story, I, but I've, okay, and I'm, I'm actually someone who I like Boogie Nights a lot less than I used to mm-hmm. after this recent watching. But I can't say you, you can't say it, he rips it off. That whole movie is referencing other films. It's not well, like yeah. he's trying to get one by you. Well, he's just referencing it now. Whether you, whether yeah, you don't reference. like that, he's referencing. Yeah. You know, yeah. And I, I hate this idea that people think that he, that he's trying to get away with. Oh, he's stealing. Like that's not. Well, that would be Matt Gamble's take on Paul Thomas Anderson. He's like, why would I bother watching a Paul Thomas Anderson movie? Can I watch a Robert Altman movie? There's no Robert Altman movie that looks like Boogie Nights. <laughs> yeah. Robert Altman doesn't move his camera quite like, yeah. yeah. No, the, the, reason, the reason that I became, I mean, it's funny that I, I think we all do have a, or so a lot of us have a very, we're obsessed with Anderson. Like we, we are obsessed with his work because he, he does kind of hide those little, those little things. It's, and it, it started for me with Boogie Nights. Just, and, and that's one of those films where I think we all have them. We've all talked about them where if I stumble upon that film on cable, it has to get watched to the end oh, yes. no matter where I am in it. And I have just, to watch it, Alfred Molina. And you know, it's not even, yeah, and it's not even because, because uh, it's my favorite film or it's, right. you know, it might not even be my favorite Anderson film, but it's a film that I just start to anticipate what's coming next that I'm like, Oh, I, I got to just see that again and just watch this guy's reaction and look in the, but you, you we start to collect the bits of mm-hmm. his movies, the way some people collect rare music or, you know, because it really is. I mean, I, 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 I have to watch all the extras on his, I don't think you can watch Magnolia without watching the Amy Mann video. That's on the DVD for a different song. Uh, than uh-huh. that's in, but, um, but the, because it's part of this film, it's it literally is she. Every so often, 
they would like on a different set, they would just call, okay, today's Amy's day. And they bring her in and they'd shoot a little piece of the video with one of the actors. And it's, that's as much a part of, and then you watch the trailers and, it, and there's, there's a trailer that has each character introducing themselves. And they're like, that to me is a part of the experience. And that's why you have that. He's released this thing from the master. Mm-hmm. I mean, no one teases a film as, as well as Anderson does these <laughs> days. And it's great. And, and, and you have to listen to the commentaries and you have to listen and watch all the little extras. Yeah. I don't feel as compelled to do that with, I don't, I'm not much of a script reader, but I had to read Boogie Nights and, and I went in and, and there were scenes in there because there's a scene in there that explains how Dirk's car gets damaged. And, and, and we, at one point in the movie, it's just busted up at his nice, yeah. nice car. And I never understood why there's a scene that was written in the script that explains it and I'm like oh well there it is and then when I think the I don't know if it was the the, the double though the DVD came out he actually shot that scene it's on the DVD and I'm like sure. holy fuck there's this there's there it is right there yeah. and, 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 and yeah, like, I, I can't like I don't think I can't think of a deleted scenes that I get more excited about than <laughs> seeing Dirt Diggler's car get busted and I, I do like the idea of all this other ephemera being part of the experience and, and I mean you want to think about how good Paul Thomas Anderson does it. Just look at like look at Southland Tales that tried to do sort yeah. of the same thing uh, with this sort of accumulative anthology of comic books and, yeah. and just completely novels, yeah. like I like I like Southland Tales. So do I. But mm-hmm. it's it's definitely not Magnolia. Like no. It's, <laughs> no. <laughs> well, I mean, it's you know, it's obvious that you know, he 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 writes too much and he probably shoots too much. And in fact, like you know, some people have mentioned that. The, the the subplot and you know involving the the, the young um, black kid. There's this whole other thing about the right, worm right, that we right. don't really know anything about in the movie. We don't really know about you know Marcy's arc or any or her what becomes of her children and things like that. And that sort of got you know cut cut out of the film. And you know it's it's interesting that that you know like I said with other films maybe I would gravitate towards that as a flaw and saying like oh man that's why is this loose end here why. You know what? What is what purpose does that serve? Um, and it's interesting because you know maybe it, because of my emotional response to both you know the movie itself and Paul Thomas Anderson's approach to movie making that um, yeah I, I kind of maybe would overlook that as being a flaw. Yeah. You know, so it's tough. <laughs> I, I, but again, and I mean, this is you know sort of getting to subjected territory, especially when Paul is sort of indulging his whims. You know, that, you know, you don't, you know, there's no, uh, there's no one-to-one sort of symbology where it's like, well, the the reason there's a flower, like, painting in every dining room is because of this. It's just, you know, but, and, or, like, a zoom in on that, uh, on that, like, text that's hidden in the painting that said, but it did happen, you know, like, like, but every once in a while there is, uh, I really don't like... Uh, like the sort of title card that comes right after the frog rain, it says, "Well, now then." It's like, all right, <laughs> so now then, we yeah. get it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just, yeah. But there, are, like, there are parts of this movie that really do. Like, I really, genuinely think Julianne Moore like gives a bad performance. Oh a lot no, of people feel that way. I, I, that breakdown in the pharmacy is. <laughs> yeah, I was watching it when I watched it most recently. I watched it with someone who had never seen it before, and when that scene was over, she just went. She's the greatest actress I've ever seen. Like after that scene, and it's she needs to see safe. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, maybe she has, but that, that, yeah. and there's certainly many examples of Julianne Moore's greatness. But mm-hmm. uh, but man, that that scene 
just kills me. And I, I didn't even realize what I was watching it. It was Pat Healy was the pharmacist. She was yeah, going off on like innkeepers. He's from Chicago. Like he's he. Right. I'm like he used to come to my screenings in Chicago when oh, like so cool. ten years ago. I know. And, and he, he he was in he's in the innkeepers, mm-hmm. which did a screening here at the Music Box not too long ago. Yeah, and he came up and he said. I'm not, you know, he said, well, I used to go to your screenings. I'm like, you're in fucking Magnolia, dude. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably what I would have said. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just, it feels like very shrill, shrill and very surface. I, I have the same problem. What's the. Melora Walters? Yeah. Uh, I have the same problem with her. Like, it's just, it's just like hyperventilating and getting, and just going crazy. Uh, I mean, I. I think Tom Cruise is sort of a good ex- Tom Cruise's performance is a good example of like he goes really big and especially in that breakdown right in front of it but and maybe it's not even Julianne Moore's fault maybe it's just the way the character's written that you don't see any other side of her than just like going from scene to scene going oh gag yeah like it's, <laughs> but it's not knowing about her past at all or I mean and we're just supposed to experience her frustration and anxiety within the moment but she's you know she's also a drug addict well, you have you to know. remember what the main thrust of her story is that this man is dying that she... I mean, we do know, we know just enough about her past to to give that character enough weight to justify the shrillness because she's angry with herself for the kind of woman she was before she met Jason Robards, yeah. the kind of woman she that she would marry him for his money. And then she's even more angry at herself for letting herself fall in love with him. And now she's now he's dying and she can't like it's like she missed this golden opportunity to really be in love with him when he was in love with her and not sick. And 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 it's just it's just taken its toll on her that the way she's lived her life up to that point has been as a as a black widow. basically. And, yeah. and that would be a good that would be yeah. a good story. But the way it's presented in Magnolia, there's like. It's just like the drama of the story is literally just that one note is this is where she is. And then we check it. We keep checking in on her. This is still where she is. Well, this, we, they're, they're sketches. They're not like fully developed characters. There's, there's too many of them. And even at three hours, there's not enough time to give each of them right. their due weight. But these are, are sketches that we're actually allowed to. I don't like everything, having everything spelled out for me. I like to get these sketches of these characters, no, like, get just enough information. And then we can kind of build something around them with our brains i'm not a it's not i'm actually love using my brain before during and after or during and after a movie i like kind of painting a picture if, if i think the character is worthy it's not they're not always worthy i have i agree that molar walters is a little harder to stomach because mm-hmm. she's just such a scatterbrain and th- th- i mean obviously she's got this really horrible thing that happened to her as a kid um the, the connection from the past to the present isn't quite there as much as I think some of the other characters are, but um, I, I've always liked her. I, I think she's hilarious in Boogie Nights, but uh, yeah, it, 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 she's a little harder to justify. I think they don't all work and they don't all work to the same degree. The ones that do, but, but uh, I will throw down about Julianne. Moore. Yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. I'm, I just, it's, I'm it's not about, it's not about having everything spelled out. It's about, it's it's about the way drama works, where like there needs to be some kind of movement in the story. If it was a sketch of this character, and it was a very moving sketch of a character, and that was all she was in the movie, that'd be one thing. But they keep cutting back to her, and there's no progress. Like there's no. And I'm not even saying, oh, her character doesn't progress. It's over the course of one day. I'm not expecting her to have. But like that's like how drama works is you know there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, there's a. And and there are, and that is the case for Tom Cruise's story. That's the case for Philip Seymour Hoffman's story. For you know, uh, but uh, I'm not sure there's going to be consistency with each character. 
in terms of how the story is presented. You know, because the, I think what they're experiencing is inconsistent emotional states. And even like she, Joanne Moore kind of has a quiet, intimate moment with Phil Seymour Hoffman where she's sort of like resigned to what she wants to do now. And that's, I find that moment really effective. Actually, the scene where she's telling her, the lawyer, like when she's basically confessing to the lawyer yeah. is kind of, but here, here's the, here's the thing. I, the beginning, middle and end thing to me, that's, that's a story that isn't drama is the emotion that's attached to that story. And I don't need as much detail in a drama like to, to make me feel something emotionally. I mean, you watch her break down in that pharmacy. You can't, if it, I mean, I, all I could think of was if I saw that, if I was walking down an aisle and saw that woman, I would, that's how it felt. It was so like, you almost want to look away. It's so, it's so, mm-hmm. it's so awkward. And so, Awful. I, I, my my problem with that scene is I have no idea why the the guy at the pharmacy is provoking her. Like that scene is so contrived. A lot of people feel that way. My mom felt feels that way about that scene. She's like, "There's no pharmacist that would respond." Yeah, react he's that a way. pharmacist. <laughs> like that's literally his. That's like you, like you'll never find uh, you will never find someone who works at a sex shop being like, "Oh, that's a weird porn." No, that's where he works. <laughs> you know, like. Well, so, I think he that was his very ineffectual way of just telling her, "Hey, you can't mix all these drugs together." Oh, really? And just looking at her, I, he's got at her as being twitchy. And, that's, but, no, that's, I mean, I read it as I read it as he, he was trying to like he was trying to be like, "Hey, you like to party?" Like I thought that's what he was. <laughs> well, that that if it's you know if you me. know Pat Healy, that that's exactly how he is. By the way, so no, he he yeah he's he would hit on a woman who was clearly a drug addict. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that Pat Healy. <laughs> well, he has a type. Um, but uh, <laughs> nice. No, and it's and, I, and again, I, I do not want to imply that these are things that I think make this a bad movie or even like m- make me unable to enjoy it. Um, I would say the biggest stumbling block for enjoying it is just that it's such a grueling experience, <laughs> which is clearly the point. I mean, obviously, that's you know, there are movies that are. That are they're going to put you through the ringer, and this is one of them. Well, you described it as an emotional battering ram. Yeah, I think I like movies that are. I love Requiem for a Dream. I think I have this weird masochistic masochistic side to sometimes for me when I watch like an emotionally uh, intense movie to where you know it's like yeah, it's it's exhausting, but I also feel like invigorated by it at the same time. Hey, weirdly, I have a, although it's a completely different style of filmmaking, I get the same emotionally draining. Uh, feeling from like a Mike Lee film, or like oh, just yeah. and, and but and it's it's even hard sometimes to recommend those films to people. But I, you know, because a lot of people because they, they're going to want to drink after because that because <laughs> well, they equate feeling bad walking out of a movie with yeah, a bad yes. movie, and that's not if if, if you walk yeah. out of a movie that's supposed to make you feel bad, feeling bad, the movie worked mm-hmm. a plus. You yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, that's, and that is that is not what I'm talking. About. What yeah. I'm talking no, about no, is, I know, I got what you. I'm talking about more is more just like. Like a Mike Lee movie will balance out those big dramatic screaming moments with just like, you know, quiet, bubbling emotion. And there's really like even something uh, like WizKid Donnie, like you don't you don't like it's not a quiet scene. It's that really showy. And this is of all of the sort of musical cues, like camera movements that Paul Thomas enters. This is probably the only one that I'm not a huge fan of the big showy, like goodbye stranger moment, like. The long tracking shot, into like the bar. everything, is just like trying to dazzle you at once, and I just and I mean there is, uh, there is the uh, you know the musical number is literally, very literally just like almost an intermission from the story. We're just like right, all right, catch up. But by the way, this is really, like, but even that's not even the characters themselves have to catch up. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> like he's putting us through the ringer, man. We gotta 
we gotta just have a no, quick I love, sing along. I, <laughs> I love the choice of the frog rain. I and again, and I, this is sort of the way I've, I've described it is like even its flaws are like the kind of flaws I wish more films would have mm-hmm. because that means because I prefer a film to be messy because it's very personal to someone. He's trying, like, yes, yeah, exactly. Thing. I can, yeah, I, I, yeah I, even the things I don't, the choices he's made in all his films. If I don't like him, I'd still defend his right to do them. Yeah, like, I right. want to see him do it and try and fail than not try at all. So Absolutely. And I, I do think Magnolia is an excellent movie. I just um, – that's sort of – I'm just – I'm literally just talking about the difference between a very good movie and a masterpiece in my mind. That's Oh, no. And that's, and that's definitely a strength of yours. And I know that you know on Facebook it was like, I'm not trying to get you to renounce the movie. And that's I, I totally <laughs> know that's not your intention at all. It's just that I always have to acknowledge the fact that, yeah, maybe those questions are there and, and, and they're definitely warranted. But, okay, I, do you – what – okay, so you have sort of – you know, you, you've said you have different ideas about what the movie's about every time you watch mm-hmm. it. But I cannot for the life of me connect the introduction about fate versus coincidence with the rest of the film. You know, wasn't – and I might be remembering this wrong. Wasn't the sort of tag to that whole intro that these things really did happen? Like, yeah. Wasn't that – to yeah. me, that's the only connection is that here's – here's Strange a, things happen all yeah, the time. Yeah, like – yeah, it's just <laughs> – but no, the – you know, it's weird. By, by juxtaposing that, just by putting – you know, it's classic editing 101. By putting one image next to another image, you immediately – draw some you have to in your mind you start to try okay why would someone do that mm-hmm. there's got to be a connection but there doesn't have to be a connection there could just be this really i mean ricky jay is a classic storyteller and 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 he has a perfect voice for telling and he's for narrating and uh i, I think he just wanted them to tell these kind of funky stories and get us get us thinking about okay the world might not be put together like we think it is there's a randomness there is to it. Or there's not a randomness to it that's mm. i think what the opening is saying is right. things aren't okay. random things are done by design sometimes mm-hmm. so um some and maybe that's just the i mean that's that's as far as it goes i don't think there's a a theme or a message that that carries over um, it's just like here. It's just sort of mentally preparing us to look at the world in a slightly different way. I'm not sure I would have been as accepting of a frog rain without that weird yeah. opening. So like, it's it's more about setting a tone of I think look. It is. You're going to have to swallow a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> here, here are three frogs. stories that you might not be able to swallow as well. Yeah, and I find that, interesting that like the sense. most intelligent characters, you know, sort of speak is is the kid, and and, and he, you know, uh, Stanley just has this like uh, quiet acceptance of, oh, this is just something that happens. Whatever. Well, yeah, what you were saying, he's looking through the book of meteorological phenomenon, right. and then when the frog rain happens, he's it's just... like, oh, yeah. He is accepting yeah. the frog rain. And he's always talking about the weather, or he has an interest in the weather, uh, you know, when he's talking to uh, Felicity Huffman, yeah. actually, in the elevator. So I think some things sort of tie together in a very loose way. Yeah. <laughs> you know, here, here's the bottom line. This movie is about nothing in particular, and it's about everything. There you go. Nice. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. I think we can move on then. We're all good. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Why don't I own this? Why don't I own this? I'm prepared to give you $3,700. No. We have oil here. That's worth something. What would you like, Eli? My son is a healer and a vessel for the Holy Spirit. He has a church. Oh. And you will be cast up as the rest of the opposition. If you build a pipeline, 
and we do a deal with Union Oil. Then we're making money, making the real money that we should be making. I mentioned a little bit, a little bit of this with the with the master teaser and mm-hmm. sort of the way that when Paul Thomas Anderson takes his time with his movies and he he lets no details out, like even like Tarantino, the scripts will often get leaked and always get leaked. Yeah, yeah. always get leaked. And so, yeah, exactly. And uh, is the, is the and, and he and he's very he's very open about all these projects <laughs> nice. that he's like to do. There's always, and this adds to what you're talking about. Like there's this mystery to Paul Thomas Anderson that people obsess over and. Uh, after I think this is after Magnolia. I'm not sure if maybe he was just on the jury at Cannes or if Magnolia played at Cannes. But uh, at a press conference at Cannes, he uh, after Magnolia, he said, "Ah, oh, they someone asked him what his next movie is going to be. He goes, I think I'm going to make a movie with Adam Sandler.' And everyone <laughs> like cracked up laughing. They're like, "What?" And then Pondra Love came out. It's com- not only does it not look like anything Scorsese, not look like anything Altman. Not like Boogie Nights or Magnolia. Like mm-hmm. it is such a weird singular film. It doesn't look like anything. Um, and then after that, that was 2002. There was a five year gap between movies, and that is such an amazing way to sort of be like to build up this sort of anticipation of what it, this guy is capable of anything. And right. even people thinking, oh, he is capable of anything. I don't think anyone is prepared for There Will Be Blood. Um, you know because. Number one, it's uh, it's a you know it's a period piece, um, and uh, it's a uh, it's a kind of a huge scale. It's you know very epic, and while his movies have been often been long and have wide reaches, uh, you you couldn't say necessarily that like you know that the uh, that the San Fernando Valley home or whatever where all the parties are at in Boogie Nights is necessarily this huge set that was built. You know, this is something mm-hmm. that was. And uh, it had he had Daniel Day Lewis, who again is an actor who keeps a lot of mystery about everything, and yep. who doesn't act a lot. And when he does act, it's always an event. Um, and for a while, people were very excited, uh, but I like I think just everyone was gut punched by that ending. Um, <laughs> again, <and> yeah. <laughs> still, I uh, I've I've, been, I've talked to so many people trying to piece together what that means, and like everyone has a different theory, you know, like. Like Magnolia, um, but uh, I was not prepared for the first fifteen twenty minutes of right. this movie. Coming from Anderson, um, just that incredibly dialogue-free, uh, just let's capture all this action and summing up what a character is without any dialogue and that that score and everything about it. I mean, a lot of people were, again, I mean, I guess it's sort of in our nature to say, well. A little Kubrick, just a little bit, you know. I mean, people sort of like to do that with most filmmakers and most films, I think. Just mm-hmm. sort of go, there's elements of this filmmaker there. But I really felt that it was something I never had seen before from Anderson, and that alone was worth celebrating. And yet he managed to, you know, bring, bring forth not just a, a character study, but uh, again, sort of like I, it was his first time uh, adapting a book. An epic book. Well, adaption is adaption. very loose. Yeah, very loose indeed. Um, but yeah, just the, the, some of the choices. And ter- again, I mean, there's there's definitely an operaticness to it. And I uh, again, it was 
you know, seeing Daniel Day-Lewis take control of this character, I think my only quibble when I first saw it was Paul Dano because I was like, like, like his kind of sort of shrill, like, like his, like just his reactions to, um, to da- to Daniel uh, Plainview, like you know, grabbing him by the hair or whatever. I just thought was kind of more comedic than I, I was expecting. Like I was expecting to be more like devastated, but at the same time. As uh, over the years, I've sort of grown to really appreciate his well, performance. Well, I, I think I think I had the same reaction. I think the first time you see the movie, you're trying to figure out what this is doing. And yeah, you're, I think I think if you you know whether you're an audience who wants things to be a certain way, or you're a film fan who has seen enough movies that knows there's a lot of different ways to do it, like. Like I was trying to like, okay, so is this a rise and fall or is it and then when you see Paul Dano and you see that just amazing dinner table scene between you're like, Oh, I see. They're gonna be competitors and like mm-hmm. that's the way you view the movie, that's not really how it is. I think like people would complain like Paul Dano can outact uh, which which is always weird to me that people like it's the same thing with Heat people would be with people would were always like uh, oh De Niro versus Pacino. <laughs> that's not how the acting is. It's not no. a sport. Um, it's people complimenting, are like, oh, Dano the, can't, it's complimenting the movie. Dano can't hold a candle to Daniel Day Lewis. Like his character can't hold a candle to Daniel Plainview. Right. It's it, so like that's not a problem for me. I think he's. I think he perfectly obeys his role. I love his. He has such a great face. Mm-hmm. Um, you know where he just be very still, especially and when he's covered in mud and he's. Oh yeah, his father. <laughs> that, 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 that is a great shot. And yeah. it's like God doesn't save stupid people. <laughs> um, no, I honestly I don't think you can talk about this. This movie is uh Daniel Day-Lewis's performance. Um yeah. And it's and it's still just a very nebulous thing. Uh, I constantly every time I watch it I'm constantly thinking like is he losing his humanity? Did he never have humanity? At what do to what degree does he care about HW or is he just using HW? And I think it very, you know, wisely leaves these questions unanswered and Mhm. Um, or at least saves the answers till the end. I yeah. think. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I. So uh, it's it's just and Daniel and I mean you know he's very intense and it, and especially people always remember the end. Uh, people like to say that the end is over the top, but they apparently forget. He like he drinks like a quart of vodka right yeah. before that scene starts. <laughs> he turns into a drunken maniac. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but like he's very entertaining throughout. Like he. The the baptism scene is something that every time I see it, I again there's always some moment in an Anderson movie where I'm just like so taken aback. And even though I've seen this movie a few times, every time I watch, I'm just like, this is something I don't think any other filmmaker would do. And it's almost just jarring in such a perfect way. Yeah. Because like Daniel Plainview in that moment, I am still questioning how sincere he is when he screams. I've abandoned my exactly. child. It's, it's more about the just like questioning because at one point he's definitely just going through the motions. Yes. And at one point he definitely feels it. But where one becomes the other is so mysterious. And that mm-hmm. is an incredible magic trick to play on an audience when they are when it's a one steady shot and they have not taken their eyes off you and you and just are able you to slip you figure him out. Yeah. You know? That's what's incredible about that. I think I think the most one of the most telling sequences, and it is a full sequence in the film is all the everything that happens around the the brother character or mm-hmm. the the would be brother character because I think once it's established once Daniel is convinced this this guy that Kevin J O'Connor plays is his brother he starts to open up and, and he really gets very comfortable and we see him 
maybe more relaxed in some of those scenes uh, than we see him in any other part of the film. Um, and it's very clear that when he is with someone that he thinks he can trust, um, he has to question and that. trusting is different than opening up to mm-hmm. for him. Um, yeah, he, it, it's sort of it's sort of wonderful to see that bit of humanity. And of course, the minute he is betrayed or finds out he's been betrayed, it's not even. I mean, it's an instant death sentence, and we have no doubt that it's going to happen. And we almost don't blame him for because this, you know, you just don't cross this particular guy that way. But yeah, I, I do think this is about a monster who is looking for to touch, get, get in touch with some part of humanity you know it's just he wants to be a better person and a more uh caring person and he tries with this kid although he you know he it also happens that there's this i mean i don't think his ulterior motive with with hw is the is to have a sweet as he says a sweet face to take with him mm-hmm. on these trips it's a nice byproduct of what he wanted to do anyway which just take care of this kid who was the son of this man that helped him find this oil like it was like a debt that he was repaying, and I guess. So he wanted to be a, a father. For and, I think and he I, did. I dis- yeah. And what's funny, I disagree completely. I think what he wants is to shape someone in his own image. You see him, he's training him on the job and you, you know, and he's very much about just like, just he wants to shape. And as soon as HW is unable to communicate with him and unable to follow him in that way, he has no use for him that's, anymore. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think when, when, when HW is of use to him, and I think this is the way he thinks... This is. I think he thinks a father does this. I think a, a father acts this way, is shaping, uh, giving his child the tools to. And, and to be fair, at the turn of the century, you know, individual expression wasn't a huge priority of <laughs> True. of child rearing in the first place. <laughs> he wasn't training him to be a ballerina. Yeah. He was training him to be an oil man. So, but no, I, I I think there that. But then, people or the world or whoever is are just constantly letting Daniel down. And uh, either just because of freak accidents or because people are deliberately trying to deceive him. But he obviously he has a hair trigger when it comes to having his feelings hurt. Um, but at the same time, I think he really does want to let people into his life. Interesting. Um, yeah. No, and, I mean, like and, when he becomes spiteful towards the end uh, with HW, I always question, well, is he hurt or is he just really a competitive businessman? And I think he, it's, he's very honest and open with uh, with uh, his well his brother Henry mm-hmm. um, and just says I have a competition in me I I want no yeah. one else to succeed yeah and when I see when I when I see that scene I believe him when he's saying that yeah absolutely I, I agree I think that's he can't that's just, that's and that's sort of the monster in him that's never going to let him be yeah. a true human <laughs> a real boy <laughs> and that and that is to me what makes the performance so compelling it isn't that he's you know isn't that he's just fun to watch which he absolutely is and it isn't that he can switch between you know being funny pretty much any scene between him and Paul Dano where he's just being like sarcastic and trolling <laughs> Paul Dano yeah. so, that was a hell of a show Eli <laughs> hell of a goddamn show a goddamn hell of a show <laughs> yeah yeah and like uh, um, where he uh, he just like goes the daughter of these hills yeah. and just <laughs> Like all, all scenes like that are really funny, but and it's not just oh he can be intense and he can be that. Like it's this idea that I have a very different idea of what you think, uh, you know, Daniel Plainview is and what his motivations are, and they work and they both like yeah. work within the the narrative. Um, at the same time, what I love about this movie, and I think it sort of started with Punch Drunk Love, was Paul Thomas Anderson has always been like uh, like you know an amazing director, but he you know. He finally, I think, developed his own style. Yes, with uh, Punch Drunk Love, and 
Whereas... And didn't necessarily want to, like, I mean, I think, obviously, there are probably elements of punch drug love that are personal, but um, not, to, not, to, not to the same magnitude no, of, like, mag- def- Magnolia. Well, I mean, look at, look, look at it this way. Paul Thomas Anderson has gotten kind of movies, studios, to back the, like, insane, like, how do you get any studio to make Magnolia? You know, like probably wasn't that expensive. That's that's an easy way to do it. I don't know. It's I mean, pile a lot of famous faces into it and don't call, don't spend a lot of money. Uh, that's those are pretty much how you get any. Would the frog rain be expensive? Uh, it's a special effect, so no, mm. probably not that expensive. I mean, but no, it's it's a it's a big. I mean, Boogie Nights was a you know for the kind of movie they are and for the kind of audience they can have. This you know, it's it's obviously not a, a tent pole, but yeah, like in order to ha- make the kind of movies, like he has to be ruthless. And one of the things I really like about There Will Be Blood, there's this really interesting idea of you, res- like your introduction to Daniel Plainview is uh, him doing his job and doing it very well. Yes. You don't see him as a capitalist. Right. You don't see him making deals. You see him digging in the ground, breaking his leg, and dragging himself to a like a mineralogist. So you respect him in that. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, yeah. and, uh, and at the same way, like you have to think, like PTA has to respect this, this person who is working against... Uh, these big corporations who's denying all these, you know, he, he has his own vision. He has his, he drills. It's his, you know, like, um, I, you know, obviously, you know, not all the way because as far as I know, Paul Thomas Anderson has never murdered a member of the clergy. But you know, to an extent, Daniel Plainview is sort of like him. And that, and that is, in a way, that's how that's, the movie is personal. Whereas I think Punch Drunk Love, it feels like just sort of a, a loose sketch of a character that is designed to go through these ideas. Yeah, he just he just wanted to make an Adam Sandler movie his own way. <laughs> yeah, and but I, what, anyway, what I was saying about the style, like it's really restrained, but at the same time, like it's really well shot. Like he the, mm-hmm. this, the sort of you know mise en scène these these portraits he creates with a frame, and um, I think I think sort of what defines a lot of those sequences is whereas before he would have these kind of Scorsese and uh, like montages set to you know seventies music or something like that like yeah the like he he has his own drummer <laughs> he's moving to the beat of of you know uh, right there's no split Johnny screen. Greenwood's uh, mm-hmm. uh, music and it's but it's very rhythmic um, and yeah. it's and that's that scene where the oral Derrick explodes is in is incredible and I love that like you see like okay the first shot of the movie is mountains with Johnny Greenwood's like you know like indistinct like uh, undeniable string section just making just making mountains mm-hmm. like the scariest yeah, thing intense. ever and intense. it's yeah. the whole movie uh, like the way it's shot where the oil is bubbling up during the silent sequence it's just like something is being unleashed and that when the oil Derek finally hits oil and then suddenly it just turns into hell it's it's this amazing <laughs> symbolic moment of like well there's no stopping it now yeah um, um I would I would, I would love to talk about the ending because um the the whole film can be seen as oh it's a character study of Daniel Plainview and it's about this man you know in a struggle with humanity and it it's you know it's it, you can question whether or not uh, he's losing his humanity if he ever had it if he wants it. Um, but it's it's about him and his struggle with his dark side. Um, but then the last sequence uh, is him giving in. 
Is it though? Because he didn't he already give in? He already murdered someone. It's not the first time he murdered. He already turned away his son in the most cruel possible way. Uh, he's already sequestered in his house, just drunk all the time. Like the whole like that that it feels like a coda to the mm-hmm. story, and it's and for the life of me, it makes me feel like it made me look back on the story. Wait, was this allegorical? Was this is this about religion versus capitalism? Is this about uh, and I. I, I think it's the false prophet versus sinner. Like those are the two things they accuse each other of. So mm-hmm. it, I, honestly, I think if you really want to boil this movie down to its essentials, it's about two guys who hate each other, but they kind of need each <laughs> yeah. other to to build up this this establishment, build up this little town, get split the money, and you know, I mean, and one but it basically comes down to there can be only one like that's and, and but at that point it doesn't even really matter because paul dano is broke um he's admitted that he's basically lost everything yeah. in the depression and right. so is it him is it plainville putting him out of his misery or is it just <laughs> finally saying you know what i am so rich now i can do this and i won't get in trouble for it like that's really and i i, I do have to admit uh, <laughs> i i did get it like a transgressive thrill from a major motion picture like this having a care having a just lingering on a character saying again and again that God is a superstition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like all the people who thought they were just going to Aussie Oscar bait. They're like, he's really pushing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, well, part of it too, I think is he loses his sense of, uh, not necessarily power and control over his son, but I mean, he just loses that connection completely. You know, he's, he's renounced it basically. And, and in that moment he realizes he can, you know, sort of, uh, not necessarily re- rec- reclaim his throne, but just dominate this this guy that he's hated for so long in such a a brutal and confrontational way, to the point where you know, obviously he's he's completely off his rocker and he's drunk and he doesn't. I mean, it's ins- it's like he's eating a steak and yeah. he's just like he, I mean, he's just uh, he's literally chewing scenery. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and the milkshake line, yeah. like you know. I, that is so fucking bizarre and and crazy and wonderful at the same time. It's like, again, it's one of those things. You know, it, be, it became, um, you know, a cultural staple, and people remember that line for for a reason. I mean, it's, it comes completely out of left field in a way, but uh, it sort I don't of know, sums like, up, it sums up who he is. Well, like, upon that's not- upon rewatching it, I, I I realized like milkshake necessarily doesn't necessarily str- uh, stand out as much as some of the other ways he mangles. Like, he'll just stretch out words and he'll just be like, Drake! <laughs> like, like, to me, that's just as crazy. It's, I mean, it's, I, yeah. it's not, a, it's not, drainage isn't necessarily a catchphrase like, I drink your milkshake. Like, I think, I think one of the reasons I drink your milkshake sort of became a meme is because you can apply it to your life. Sure. <laughs> you can tell someone, I just drank your milkshake. He thought you had something, but you didn't. Well, he just, he, he craves dominating yeah. people. And then, like, that scene, that awesome scene when, He's having dinner with with HW and then and the guys from Union or Standard Oil are sitting. At that there. point, he's already been like he's already sort of a drunk and yeah. I wait and I I was wondering is he a drunk the whole way through because there is, when he finds out about the uh, accident at the oil derrick he is passed out on a hardwood floor like yeah. he's. Mm. Well, I, I thought he was just lying down to keep his leg straight because he couldn't walk. But uh, hmm. at that point, he could walk. Isn't there a point? Isn't there a point where even in that opening sequence where he 
pulls pours something over like within a flask yeah, yeah. or something like yeah he pulls, yeah. He, gives, he puts whiskey at the end of the bottle for the for the baby but oh that's right that's right that's, <laughs> that's right. actually right. something they did back then <laughs> well no right right to calm down a teething baby but whatever, seriously but. is there I mean is there ever a moment in this film where you aren't a little scared of plain view like is yeah. there is there any time where you don't just think he has murder in his eyes. Right. Even when he's playing with his kid, he's like, if he just up and snapped that kid's yeah. neck, I would have gone, well, <laughs> yeah. you know, it there was is, there. It's not sure. so true. There is that little <laughs> bit of, there's that little bit of like I Terminator 2 when the Terminator picks up the baby. There is a little bit of, like he's playing with it, but he's also just sort of teasing it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and it's and it, it's incredible how Plainview can be all these things to, to all these people. And it's, uh, and again, because he does what he does well, um, you respect him, and at one point, like I was like, "Oh, is he? Is he a good for?" Because there's that long monologue about building roads and schools and, and irrigation and everything. Um, and then somehow, like even though that's never really addressed again, somehow the second you see that big flame coming out of the ground, and you see his like demonically face, yeah. you know, backlit by it, and he's like, "Why are you upset?" <laughs> like, <laughs> like he's he's like so happy about that. Like it's like, oh no, he's Satan. There's there's, well, there's, there's you got to remember it's it's him and his that sidekick that Karen Hines plays that. Yeah. Then they're standing there watching it burn right after he's he's sort of taken H W to the mm-hmm. canteen and and Plainview's just black with yeah. oil, and then Hines is standing there and he's he has nothing on him, and it's dark. And so the only thing that's lighting him up is this fire. And right. it's just like this, you know, this, he's just, a, he looks like a demon. Like yeah. he looks like a demon covered in the oil. And that's when you realize when Karen Hines says, is HW all right? And he's like, no, he's not. Or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, wait, so he really, the kid is no use to him anymore. I mean, really it's, it's like that. It's, it's just, yeah. Um, yeah. It, that's a, that's a creepy moment. That's a really upsetting moment. Especially actually. because of the music. Yeah. Johnny right. Greenwood's score. Like I remember I got, I checked out the score from the library once and I just drove around like, this is when I lived in the suburbs. So I'm driving around Naperville and I'm just like, Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like people like in sprinklers and stuff. The trees. And like, ah. the yeah. trees. <laughs> um, well, a lot of people, a lot of people were saying, you know, like the, it sort of captures the, the the conflict of the cornerstones of modern America, business and faith, and how they yeah. constantly collide and they they never seem to uh, work out in, in harmony. And you know, I, one you know, someone could certainly look at you know just like uh, you know Eli. Well, he represents religion, and Daniel represents capitalism. And look at what happens when you know they they try to you know have some sort of relationship and. I get a little bit of that, but I, I mean, and then there's some people who can just look at this as a crazy character study well, of a, of a lunatic too. Well, I think I think that's not even subtext. Like it is textual that mm-hmm. Eli and Paul and uh, not Paul Daniel are in direct competition. Yeah, like that that is like, and there's a very there's a like they there's that moment at the dinner table like Daniel just pauses before he goes what would you like Eli where it's like <laughs> I see what you're doing and you see that I see what we're like we know now right and that's you know that's very deliberate um it's interesting just to go back and watch it knowing what you know um, yeah the first time again it's like hard to process and that's one one other great thing about all of his movies I think they they, they warrant and demand subsequent viewings because you'll get a different interpretation well, and, and that, yeah and again that the mystery is sort of like you know uh, like Steve said, it's like why everyone's so obsessed. It's just like um, 
you know, like even that scene in Boogie Nights where there's just that long shot of Mark Wahlberg's face during the uh, Alfred Molina scene mm-hmm. where, like, there's just no expression at all. And you're, yeah. and it's like 50 seconds or something just on his face and you don't know what's going on. Like, like what is he thinking? What is going on right there? And it's <laughs> that sort of that desire to pick it apart and figure out what's going on is very strong. I hear singing. Yeah. I wonder if we'll pick it up. I can hear it in my headphones. <laughs> it's not going to. Yeah. <laughs> now we all have to sing along. <laughs> That'd be great. In the middle of it. It's not going to stop. You just hear pump, pump, pump. Someone hitting with a broom on the ceiling. Well, let's segue into a couple of other films. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me talk about one thing that, that sure. kind of does encompass all his films. And, and part of the reason that it takes him so long to get increasingly with film to film, it's taking him longer and longer, mm-hmm. is that... I can't think of anyone that does more research than he does into making yeah. a time or a place or or a, a job feel authentic. Like he 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 when he when, even when he made Punch Drunk Love, he spent about a half a year, I think it was, just sort of hanging around Saturday Night Live and watching how they worked. And he directed a few like little short things for them. Um, he just wanted to sort of get. He thought he was going to be making a comedy in Punch Drunk Love. It didn't quite turn out that yeah. way. But but he spent an inordinate like and I, I all the there's there's like a, a brief little short um, on there will be blood about the oil industry and the birth of the oil industry and I just like that's just a fraction I'm sure of what he dug up to before he he, he shot one you know one foot oh, yeah. of frame so he really immerses himself into he the does experience. and even even in the 70s porn world or 80s porn world I mean he he got to know a lot of those people and really kind of. He featured a couple of them in the film in a non-joking way. Yeah, uh, but even Veronica Hart, who plays the mm-hmm. judge, is like I, I was shocked when I saw her face because I was like, I, I, first of all, I couldn't place it, but uh, <laughs> as a as a connoisseur of the seventies, no, I, I, um, but no, just just that like he really captured that transition in that industry from from filmmaking to product making and mass mass producing yeah. a product and. I really gravitate towards like the Burt Reynolds side of that of that yeah, movie. I, do I really too. do. I think that is. I think that's honestly what PG like. I mean, I I love Boogie Nights exuberance, and like you said, yeah. like it just has such energy. Like, you, it's so easy to sit down and just watch it because mm-hmm. it just the way it presents itself. This what I sort of realized in most recent rewatch is I'm not actually that invested in many of the characters except for <laughs> Burt Reynolds. Like it, they really are like very thin sketches. Um, yeah, I'd buy that. I, I mean, like the, the under—well, not necessarily underdog, but just the story. Like of, Dirk Diggler's, yeah, that's Dirk that Diggler's story. whole arc is he's a doofus, and then he's an asshole right. doofus, and then he's a humble doofus. Like, <laughs> like it's very broad, and mm-hmm. I, and it's fun, and it's you know, and it's often funny, and you know, there are great scenes like the Alfred Molina scene, but at, at the same time, uh, I just I'm like, wait, do we know anything about Roller Girl? Who is Roller Girl? <laughs> <laughs> like, she was a student, but high school dropout. Yeah, yeah. All we know. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I I just I, I've always been impressed with, and, and there will be blood. Kind of underscores the whole thing is, I was so fascinated just watching the process, the process of them exploring and and all the geographical studies they were doing and the building of the yeah, Derrick yeah. and. That's just like, I love that. It's when, like a uh, documentary for when, yeah. when the brother Paul comes and he's and he's asking all the questions about like is there sulfur? I'm like, oh, sulfur! Like that's yeah. an interesting little detail about and looking at the map and figuring things out. I love that stuff. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a there's there's often been said um, by better 
writers and speakers than me that watching someone at work is no matter what they're doing is some is very often inherently interesting and we almost never see it in movies right we hear what about what they do like how many romantic comedies do we hear somebody's a lawyer an architect whatever but we never like see anybody at their job and when we do see them it's really kind of it adds an authenticity and a depth uh, to see someone just do something. It, it, I don't know if you guys have seen Bernie, but the that opening it's sequence great. where Bernie is walking yeah. them through what a mortician does, like an embalming process, that's that's fascinating. That adds such depth yeah, to that character. Yeah, because you don't have experience with it. I, would, I, would, I would say my, probably my favorite example of this is at the end of Big Night when you see Stanley yes. Tucci make yeah. an omelet. Like, yeah. he's just making an omelet, <laughs> yeah. and it is the most riveting thing because he's just so good at... Making it up. That's, yeah. that's, that's one of those perfect endings. It yeah. really is. Yeah. Um, no, and it's and uh, you know, Boogie Nights is it's all a you know you you keep uh, William H Macy keeps showing up and just like we got to actually work on the script. Like <laughs> there is an actual script here, and there are actual boom operators, and there are, and you know we have to you know worry about film stock and stuff like that. <laughs> um, uh, I really uh, Heart Eight is. Do you, did you say it was re-edited? Yes, by the studio. Mm-hmm. So has they pretty his, much has his, pretty has much screwed his, him. He's he, he, he's I on knew, a record saying that. He's I knew been that screwed. they they screwed him as far as changing the title on him because he never ever refers to it as Hart. He always says Sydney. Right. right. Um, but I didn't know that they re-edited it as well. You would think with his success they would release his director's cut or I'm whatever. Sure. Yeah, I, I actually hadn't heard about that re-editing. Yeah, well, again, I mean, par- par- partially it was, uh, you know, on Wikipedia, so maybe take that with a grain of salt. But uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. at, uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure on Boogie Nights, the commentary, um, I mean, I was listening to it while doing other things, but I, I, I remember him saying specifically, yeah, that the studios did some tweaking. No, it says, their- yeah, I'm looking, it was two and a half hours and they demanded that he cut it. So now it runs 102 minutes. Wow, wow. that yeah. might help a lot, because I always thought the <laughs> yeah. reason I never really was a big fan of Heart 8 was... That uh, it it's like a character piece, but it's kind of anemic. Like it's kind of it it doesn't spend a whole lot of time with uh, with um, so bad with Philip Baker. Hall? Yeah, Philip Baker. Oh, yeah. Philip Baker. Oh, yeah. um, you know, you don't really get a whole lot there. I, I'm sure if he had like his it. way, he would have made that scene with him and uh, Riley in the car a lot longer. Yeah, because I think that you know he was. Obviously, he stated that he's a huge fan of the film Melvin and Howard, and how that's like forty minutes of two guys in a car getting to know each other. Well, that's what he, on the Boogie Nights commentary he he says. Everyone says I ripped off Scorsese. I mostly just ripped off Demi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. As well, he should, and that's the thing too. Is like I mentioned to you um, this summer. I really do want to watch a lot of the movies and directors that, that it's, has influenced him because I've probably only seen three or four Robert Altman movies. Yeah, Robert mm-hmm. Altman's my favorite director, and so. uh, I'll, I'll gladly lend you. Like, and we're going to do him next year. Buffalo Bill and the Indians and everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's it's he's great, but uh, um, no, I agree. Hard Eight is 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 probably his least engaging movie. But again, I think that the way Philip Baker Hall commands the screen, I mean, maybe the character's not yeah. fully fleshed out. And this is I love watching that guy. This is something we talk about a lot. Like, you know, you know, we talk about directors on this show, but, you know, so much of a director's job is not on, like, it, I mean, it ends up on screen in some way, but so much of the director's job is pre-production. And so much of the director's job is in rehearsals, working with actors and things that you never will see. Clearly he does that very but you well. Can, yeah, you can tell when a director's really good with actors and when a director isn't. And, you know, one of the things, despite everyone, like, you know, loves to talk about his style and everything, like, his movies have really good performances in them. Yes. 
Maybe that's, pro- that's probably a, a reason why I've decided to make him my favorite director over Sam Raimi. Sam <laughs> Raimi is not an actor's director, as we've gone on record as in saying. Yeah. But I don't know. I just get like this exuberant joy f- for most of his movies. But Heart Eight, um, other than watching, you know, Philip Baker Hall, and I mean, again, I think that partially, you know, he. I think he even said that, you know, the, just the the way things are set up between having a conversation over a cigarette and coffee was a very personal thing between him and his father. And that, I, I mean, I, I get that sense from from the movie even before I heard that. Like, you know, there's, again, the, the, the sort of surrogate parent role taking place and sort of evolving over time. And I don't know, after a third viewing, I, I was pretty choked up uh, at, during the uh, phone booth conversation between Philip Baker Hall and John C. Riley. I don't think there's a lot of, uh, you know, as you've gotten on record saying a couple of times, there's not a lot of meat mm-hmm. on those bones with, uh, with, with this particular story. I, I, I would agree with that, but I still find uh, just, just to watch these actors and even just the, the confrontation unfold in the third act, I think is kind of subtly done, and yeah. I like it. As I read on here <laughs> with the, the story about the cutting and of the film, I realized that that uh, actually the version that is out that is signed off by Anderson that he did agree to hmm. to uh, cut it back eventually. But that doesn't mean that I'm still surprised there isn't a longer right. version out there by now, or that yeah. people aren't kind of screaming for it. But um, yeah, they let him they let him have final cut uh, as long as they didn't change the title back to sydney so that was and they still barely put it out i mean it right. was barely in theaters and i think i saw it in the theater the first time it came out the same year as boogie nights didn't it i'm pretty um, sure it did um year before oh okay. year before yeah um but they didn't, didn't i remember ebert putting it on like because i remember ebert put boogie nights pretty high in his top 10 and then hard eight was in his runners up i it might have they actually yeah. it might have actually been released uh the same year yeah yeah but didn't uh, I thought Anderson did a commentary for Hard Eight, so it would he's not completely writing it off, right? Yeah, this cut. I mean, uh, so yeah, because I, I, I remember him. He tells the story in the, on mm-hmm. the commentary about uh, the title and the. Right. I don't know if he talks as much about the the editing, but uh, appa- yeah. apparently, Can wouldn't accept the film unless they had a, a director's cut signed off by Anderson. So oh. that's when mm-hmm. he kind of came to an agreement with the. Uh, you know, we were talking before about about budgets on these films. Yeah, sure. Uh, let's see here. Boogie Nights was fifteen million dollars. Oh wow! Punch Drunk and There Will Be Blood was t- for twenty five million dollars. Hmm. Punch Drunk costs more than Boogie Nights. I wouldn't have thought. No, that. no, t- no. Fifteen versus twenty five. Okay. Um, twenty five on Punch Drunk. Twenty five on There Will Be Blood. Magnolia was thirty seven. So that's his most expensive film. Is thirty seven? Hmm. Okay. Except I don't know. The Master is probably more well, that, expensive. That, but... That's probably why he can get movies made. Is because yeah. he can make them look a lot more expensive oh, than sure. they are. Yeah, and then people will work for him for nothing at this point. So right. Um, speaking of which, uh, but they also would... don't have made a lot of money. I don't think so. Not that I'm definitely not I... punch drunk love. <laughs> I'm not, and certainly would never equate box office to actual quality. Oh yeah, but. Uh, I don't think his movies have made that much either. So, um, are you like Eric Childress? Are you an, are you a numbers guy too? Not at all. I think oh, okay. quite, quite the opposite. <laughs> I kind of get frustrated when people follow box office. Yeah, me too. Closely in the word, yeah, and equating, yeah, like I said, equating a flop at the box office to a bad movie. I just there, there there's nothing. Yeah, the know, master, like the, the master little, was forty million dollars. I it, like so. the little extra joy of, as well that goes into. I didn't like this movie, so I'm glad it flopped. Like that's. That's a lot of that's you know like that's a lot of I literally just tweeted about this the other day and I said I have never gotten any satisfaction 
about any movie not doing well at the box office, even if it's one that I hated. Right. It just mm-hmm. it doesn't it doesn't. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, box office. I don't talk, get that. It can be useful as far as well. What does this mean for the future films the sure. studio will make? But or that yeah. director. Yeah, I mean, if, if, but when people go into the like the minutia of and it's third week. You know, Battleship will probably only make four. Like, all right, we don't care. You know, like, yeah. yeah. Um, how? Let's briefly touch upon Punch Drunk Love. Yeah, because I think it's, it's I, like it's. I really loved it the first time, but it's I, it's probably the seventh time since I've I, I've watched it, and I love it more and more every time. <laughs> and it's you know I even said uh, today that I I feel like there is this this like cinematic harmony going on between. The composer, the director, and the actors, and it's fully realized throughout. But that uh, that very final moment, that final scene where she, you know, is here we go. It, to me, it's it's really like not only just for the characters, but for Paul Thomas Anderson as a director, it's like saying, "I think I finally figured it out." <laughs> like in terms of finding my own original personal voice and having a you know like this beautiful marriage of everything, including like just the blue pink motifs going on, and just that that layering of because, like, I don't know, I remember when Super 8 came out, and people were like, oh, stupid lens flares, I'm sick of seeing lens flares. And <laughs> But, like, here, they just, they're obviously a reflection of the characters, which is really cool. Like, yeah. it's a neat touch to see now, you know, going back, and also just the harmonium aspect, obviously representing Well, it's harmony. a very intense <laughs> movie. Like, the colors are very intense. Yeah. And it's anxiety-inducing. Well, that's what I was about to say. There's no, there's never been a better, I don't feel, cinematic anxiety attack than... <laughs> Um, when the everything's when he, falling yeah, apart and, and his sister is yeah. coming with <laughs> with Emily and it and then what's the, with that pudding? What's with the harmonium? What's yeah, in there. What's with the piano? <laughs> and he's and he and he does an amazing job, like writing little pieces of dialogue that sound like someone is responding to a question they only just heard, and it's like they're full of you know, grammatical errors and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. like uh, you know, I'm I'm doing very food, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> Yeah, little touches like that just stand out to me more and more every time. Mm-hmm. I have, I have so I just watched it again, and I haven't. I don't know if I've seen it since it was in the theaters. Really? But I, I maybe once, maybe once when it came out on DVD initially. But I just, I um, it's the one I have the hardest time connecting with. Mm-hmm. But I, I enjoy it thoroughly, and especially I'm always, I'm increasingly impressed with just Sandler's performance. He's so yeah. good, and of going from kind of this neutral thing to just ramping it up just the rage that he is capable of i I never would have guessed that he would be the right guy to play a role like that but Mm -hmm. there is just this like uncontrolled rage and 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 especially i mean in a way that's a subversion of a lot of the sort of man child roles that he played in his comedies you know it's it's not it's not that i mean obviously different approach but character is not that different from water boy no no Um, i totally buy the transition too i mean it's like the contrast between the first time he gets beat up and then the confrontation of the blonde brothers again <laughs> like just his complete turnaround it's like i totally buy adam sandler in every way in this movie like just even you know because it's it's weird i i think i recall a couple of well maybe it was just the one time i saw it in the theater people were laughing at the scene where he started crying when, right. he's, when he's trying to confide in right in um you know, his brother-in-law and people found that really funny. And I found it really, really sad, but it's like, maybe it's just the idea for some people seeing Adam Sandler in this kind of role. They're just like taken aback by it, that their natural response is to laugh because that's Adam Sandler. But I think he really brings a lot of nuance to this role. Yeah. And I, I love, you know, little touches. Like he has, still has the phone in his hand yeah. when he goes <laughs> see Mattress Man in Utah. Right. And just like, it's, 
and um, the way he hands the tire iron back to the brother after he beats the, all the other the brothers and smashes in all the windows. A lot of smashing of windows yeah. and bathrooms and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. so well, I mean, yeah, utilizing him as this destructive force is really interesting. But it's the movie; it almost feels like he based a movie around that because I mean, he knew Adam Sandler; he was friends with Adam Sandler, and it was like, what do I, you know, I can do something with this? <laughs> and <laughs> um, and I and uh, Emily Watson is it or Emily yeah. Blunt? I get the two. Watson, <laughs> okay, Emily Watson, Watson. and Emily Watson is kind of great as be also being crazy, which is helpful. Like. I love. See, stories. I never got that impression that she was nuts or like, like at least not on the same level as he is. I think he, like she, when he comes back from the bathroom and his hands are bleeding and she doesn't question it at all. Like, hmm. there's something, you know. I thought like the owner of the restaurant came up to him really quickly for her to even react to the, his hands. Well, he he, he just left, but she didn't go. Why? You know, they're like, we we have to leave. I don't want to eat here. Like, oh okay, like. Well. She, She's I mean, very accepting of that. She's a different kind of crazy, but there's definitely, mm-hmm. and I love stories like that. She like, could be an alien. Like I love, you know, that's why I love. <laughs> that's why I love Rocky because the first Rocky is so good at making these two people so weird <laughs> and just like, oh god, this but is. They're perfect for each other. Yeah, absolutely, and it's sort yeah. of a similar thing. So I really do like Punch Drunk Love a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and I'm insanely excited for the master. I can't. And tell. I'm it's, like, it's easily my top. And I just know film. the same the same way people are just like same way. I was sort of talking about like people were not ready for There Will Be Blood. I just know like I'm I'm now looking at this movie and be like, okay, it's going to be like There Will Be Blood. And there's going to be some kind of weird ending. It's going to make you rethink everything. But they could be completely different. He could oh, yeah. he could just film a straight drama <laughs> and and he could do. We a don't great know what job, to expect you know? from this guy at all. Yeah, that's exciting. And, that's, and that is yeah, and that's exciting because there are a lot of filmmakers who at this point in their career would have fallen into some kind of rhythm and some kind of pattern and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's not a, there's not a ton of like, you can be excited. You know, obviously you can be very excited that about what Peter Jackson is going to do with The Hobbit, but you're probably not going to be surprised. You know, right. you know, uh, you know, Lincoln could is, could be amazing, but there's probably not going to be something that makes you go what? And like, <laughs> you know, like you know, it's 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 uh, it's going to be you know extremely well acted. You know, biopic or it's it's. And I love that there are directors out there who just will really surprise you. And still, you know, Tarantino Tarantino is the other one I was going to mention is you don't know exactly what he's going to be doing with uh, Django Unchained. Because remember, Inglorious Bastards seemed like it was a dirty dozen and it's not at all. Another movie, the first time I I loved it, but I really love it now. Yeah. More and more. All right. Well, uh, I think that about wraps things up. up? Yeah. Do you have any uh, closing statements on Paul? Any other things you want to get out of the way? I I think the only pattern he has fallen into with all his movies is increased procrastination. (laughs) He just makes us wait too damn long. Um, You know, it's probably going to be worth the wait. I'm sure. And I I have this, and I always hear these stories. I've heard this about a a couple of films. Uh, I know he thought this going into Magnolia, and I'm pretty sure he thought it going into Punch Drunk Love. Although he actually kind of succeeded there was. He just wanted to make something quick, you know, quick, cheap, and get it written, Fast, get cheap, it made. and out of control. Yeah, and 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 he rarely gets to do that. He gets, mm-hmm. I think, he gets kind of caught up in his own head. And thank goodness, like that happens. Yeah, because um, I, I think that uh, much like what you said about Adam Sandler's character in Punch Drunk Love, I think Paul Anderson is a certain kind of crazy, and <laughs> and yeah. I, I and I and I want more of it. And, and I know, so do I. I mean, I, I would love if he would just tackle a light genre kind of a movie with like I know he was supposed to do an adaptation of a what is it, Inherent Vice, which is like a yeah. crime mystery thriller thing. 
Uh, I, I read at one point that was like going to be his next project, but you know he kind of went back and forth between this and the, that one and the master. But I would like to see him just to do something like maybe like an out of sight kind of film where it's you know it, it's it would be his take on that kind of uh, like Elmore Leonard world or yeah. something because I think that's what that inherent vice is. But I just look forward to anything this guy does. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Excellent. Um, so uh, you can uh, follow us on at DC Podcast on Twitter. Yeah, I'm uh, at Patrick Rapol on Twitter. I'm at Instant Jim. I'm at Capone A I C N. Excellent. Um, you, you can of course can read Steve's writing on Ain't It Cool News. Absolutely. Um, what was the other website? That uh, uh, oh Gapersblock dot com. That one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, you're talking about Tug. Tug, uh, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, let's get people on that. That'd be great. Seriously, Trust we need to sell like four friggin' tickets. Just yeah. do it, guys. Don't yeah. embarrass us. Well, if we can, <laughs> I think we're going to try and go. I think okay. we should. So Sounds it's going to be a good time. Um, yeah, and uh, visit us at uh, directorsclubpodcast.com. Oh, um, also, I have a, my viewing journal is uh, yeah. Martha Marcy Nash and Young at, uh, at dot wordpress.com. So I've updated that. So yeah, I've been keeping my film diary uh, yeah. at letterbox.com. So mm-hmm. find me there at Instant Gym as well. Hmm. And send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Yeah, our next director we're going to be covering is Jane Campion, who I'm excited because I don't think I've seen any of her movies. Yeah, I've seen I've seen two of them. One I love, and one I was kind of like oh, about. Yeah. I didn't really like. In Let the, me guess: piano and in the cut. Yes, okay. which are the two <laughs> movies we're going to be talking about um, with uh, returning guest Stephen Ray Morris. So well, that'll just, be great. I, well, yeah, I remember way back we did a Joseph Losey episode, and that was so great because I just yeah. I some I, the other day I just remembered the Prowler existed, and I love that movie. Oh, well, we're always going to remember the Servant, though. So I'm hoping, yeah, <laughs> well, Servant's amazing. Yeah, so uh, hopefully. It'll be, be a great a, show, so uh, we'll look experience. forward to that. That's a lot of campion in a short amount of time. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Should be fun. Yeah. Angel at My Table is is a great movie. Yeah. I mean, it, the piano is really good, too, but Angel at My Table is probably is my that favorite. A, is that in a Criterion? Or? I don't I think, think so. Sweetie. Okay. I think Sweetie is Sweetie Criterion. Is. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've always wanted to see Portrait. Oh, she did Holy Smoke. I've seen yeah, Holy yeah. Smoke. That's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> that's a lot of fun. And Bright Stars, actually. It's not the one with... Uh, I've been meaning to see that. That's got Paul Schneider. Yeah, Abby Cornish. That's actually not bad. Oh, yeah? Yeah, cool. that's actually all right. Well, looking forward to that episode then. Mm-hmm. So join us in a couple weeks for that uh, Jane Campion episode. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Steve, for being on the hey, show. It was, it was a, a pleasure. great time. Yeah, anytime. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, back great. anytime. Yeah, I, just off the top of my head, we could do a bonus episode about Stephen King movies. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I'm, I'm right across from a bookcase. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it appears That's he has nice. every Stephen King book. Uh, probably, yeah. Not all here, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, I do have them all. Um, Great. All right, awesome, guys. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in a couple weeks. Bye-bye. And all at once I knew, I knew it once, I knew he needed me. Until the day I die, I won't know why, I knew. No, when you're like 15 and you're just like, girls, like, Punch sure. Up Love is the best love story that's ever been yeah. made. Shut up! Shut the fuck You're all right to take shut up! Will you shut up! Shut up! Shut, 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 shut up!
Shut up!